welcome to Anti-Culture Season 2. I'm your culturally ambiguous, open-eared, and always curious host, Josiah Sinanin. If you've never heard of me before, welcome. You chose a great time to jump into my journey discovering cultural identity in North America. If you missed last season, it was all about the Canadian province of Alberta, where I am born and raised, questioning diverse guests on what it means exactly to be an Albertan. If you're in any type of mosaic society, like most of North America is, this conversation is definitely a complex one. Being born and raised Albertan with mixed ethnic heritage, this conversation is an important one for me to have. I always struggled with how I should identify culturally, and I almost had envy towards my friends that could fully say they were one thing or another. Throughout my journey, I learned so much about where I live, who I am, and what culture really means to people. My biggest takeaway was that what's usually going on in North America is we all have individual stories and experiences that shape our concepts and understanding of what culture means. Yes, our backgrounds have something to do with it, but to put any one person in a box with similar people can actually be a big mistake. The value of someone's life and identity is truly found in their story. That is my aim with this show, to give people of all sorts of backgrounds a platform to share their experiences. Whether or not I agree with everything that they say is not the point. Rather, I'm setting up an anti-culture of my own by challenging people not to make assumptions based off some small facts and what we've garnered about an individual. Rather, let's foster a culture of asking questions and hearing experiences. This season, I've broken away from just focusing on Alberta in some regards. We're going to explore people that will challenge your perspective of them all across North America from a right-wing business owner, to an African-American in Hollywood, to one of the real housewives, to the founder of the Center for Newcomers here in Calgary, Alberta. This season is packed with many voices you'd normally never hear from. I'm kicking off the season with one of my good friends, Omotara Johnson, who has single-handedly changed the future of many new children in the West African nation of Sierra Leone. I'm so excited to share this episode with you and you're going to hear from all my guests as the season goes on starting today. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy episode one of Anti-Culture Season 2. Where I'm from, I don't feel a particular allegiance to one country in, you know, specifically. Mm-hmm. I feel like I am a blend of all these wonderful different cultures that I've gotten to be a part of. So Tara, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about you and give us a little summary. Yeah, well, I am Canadian by birth. I was born in Montreal, Canada, and I live in Calgary now. Um, I have a little bit of a journey with uh, different countries that I've lived in as well before I came back to Calgary to do my university education. Um, I now run a nonprofit organization, and our main goal is... Um, reducing rates of maternal and infant mortality in West Africa. And how did you come about starting a nonprofit? I think there's a lot of people that have the heart for a certain issue or an interest in a certain country. What was your journey towards actually starting one? 
That's a great question. I never intended to go out and start a nonprofit, but I actually did intend to go out and um, do some good in the world. And so I started off by volunteering. Um, I went with different organizations in the beginning, about 13 years ago now, um, and just took the opportunities that were in front of me to go and volunteer. And it grew from there. So it went from volunteering to more volunteering, but taking people along and then to leading trips um, and managing projects. And eventually it just became clear that the next step for me, if I wanted to continue doing the philanthropic work I was doing was to start a nonprofit organization. And awesome. that's how Freedom Tree was born. And tell us about Freedom Tree. So you mentioned it's infinite maternal mortality in West Africa. That's right. Which sounds pretty specific to people who don't really know about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So maybe give us a high level of what the situation is in West Africa. So Sierra Leone specifically has the highest rate of infant and maternal mortality in the world. Infant mortality is defined by the number of children under the age of five who die before reaching their fifth birthday. And for Sierra Leone, that's 20%. So that's a huge wow. number of children that don't reach their fifth birthday. Um, And then maternal mortality is defined by the number of women that die from pregnancy-related causes and childbirth-related causes. Um, And for Sierra Leone, that number is one in seven. So every time a woman goes into labor, there's a one in seven chance that she will die um, in the process of giving birth or from complications after she has given birth. Um, So our goal at Freedom Tree is eradicating those two in the country. Um, And then just to give you some context, Sierra Leone has the worst rate in in the entire world. So there is no country in the world that is a worse place for a woman to, to give birth in. So you might be thinking this is a very strange choice for my first episode, but I wanted to start here to shake things up a little bit. And don't worry, we are going to be talking about culture with Tara as well. I just want you to take a second though to really think about what Tara is saying here. Freedom Tree is very specifically focused, at least right now, on combating these horrible and hard to believe statistics in the country of Sierra Leone. If you were to look at Sierra Leone on a map of Africa, you'll find that it's actually one of the smallest countries in the continent. Imagery of civil war and conflict diamonds might pop into your head, but Sierra Leone does look different today in some of these areas. We'll get into it later, but I actually lived in Sierra Leone working for Freedom Tree for three months in 2016. And what I found is that it is a country that is very hard to place culturally. What I mean by that is, for the current generation, anything that might appear to carry a semblance of a cultural identity is actually tied up in the same things you just pictured. The Ebola crisis, war, blood diamonds. Death is a part and parcel of life, but there is so much more going on there. I also want to add that Sierra Leone is actually one of the safest countries in West Africa right now, which can be attested to by the doctors and care workers that currently work there. You can go out for a jog at five in the morning without worrying about anything. What they're focusing on is recovering from these cultures of death that have been a part of their history, and unfortunately continues to be with this infant and maternal mortality. So what we do know is that something is going on here and it is impacting the culture. And Tara has a very unique insight into that, being the head of an organization like Freedom Tree. So let's jump back in and hear more about the situation in Sierra Leone, but also about Tara's cultural upbringing. And then to give you some context, the rate in Canada is about one in 100,000. So it is so rare, you hardly hear about women dying, giving birth in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's not even something that's a a norm. Um, So we want to change that. 
right now in Canada, when somebody gets pregnant, they get very excited and they put the information on Facebook and they make the announcements and they get creative and they have baby showers before the baby's born. Um, you don't see that in Sierra Leone. People don't make those announcements. They don't um, have a baby shower before the baby's born because there is no guarantee that you're going to make it out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that we are doing something right when people feel confident going into labor, when they feel confident mm-hmm. um, once they get pregnant. And so that's our goal. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple goal, um, but uh, that's it's, it's one that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to get back more into Sierra Leone because... Um, I actually went with uh, a team that Tara organized uh, to Sierra Leone for three months in 2016. And uh, it's a very unique culture there. And it would be awesome one day if I could do a series on Sierra Leone. I would love to explore how they feel, their nationality, all that stuff. That would be great. Sierra Leone is waiting for you, Josiah. Yeah. You are just one <laughs> with Sierra Leone, and they would love to have you back. You fit right in when you were there. Oh, so I miss it so much. To, yeah, you need to whip out all your West African clothes and come back. Yeah, totally. <laughs> King Josiah returning. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> for those lost on the reference there, my name, Josiah, comes from the biblical story of King Josiah, who is a king of Israel. And everyone in Sierra Leone called me King Josiah since they were so familiar with the Bible story, which I'm not going to deny was awesome. But yeah, let's talk about you for a little bit. So um, throughout the first series of episodes, I interviewed a lot of people that had diverse backgrounds that weren't what people would expect them to be just based on their background. And I imagine the story gets complicated for you. So there's a lot of layers to your story. As Tara mentioned, she was born in Montreal. Um, She was raised in England and Nigeria, and she came back to Calgary for her university degree, and she has this heart for Sierra Leone. So how do you answer the question when people ask you, where are you from, or who are you? What is that question to you? Yeah, that's a great (laughs) question, because I quite often, especially when I'm in the West, um, because I'm a visible minority, people right. will automatically ask you where you're from. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not you have an accent, regardless of whether or not you were born here, they just assume that because you're not white, mm-hmm. you're not from here, and right. that you cannot be Canadian. Um, and so I get asked that question quite a bit. And what they're really asking is, what's your heritage mm-hmm. or where you're originally from? Right. Which really is, um, which you know, really is a form of um, racial profiling, if you ask me, because yeah. you wouldn't ask. A Caucasian um, where they were originally from because quite often there's a lot of Caucasians that are from um, say Poland or the Ukraine um, maybe first generation or that sort of thing they don't speak with an accent but maybe they were born here maybe they weren't born here mm-hmm. um, but they're not you know they're now Canadian but people don't ask them that same question right. so when I get asked when I'm from it depends on who's asking and it depends on where I am hmm. if I'm in Canada in Calgary and somebody asks me where I'm from I try and discern why they're asking me that question and the answer is different <laughs> yeah. based on that. So if they say, where are you originally from? Then I tell them my heritage is Nigerian. Right. And say, so, well, where are you from? I said, I'm from Calgary. I live in Calgary. Yeah. Um, because it's um, where I'm from is a multi-layered question. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're trying to figure out is who are you? 
based on the country that you're from. Mm-hmm. But for me, where I'm from has so many layers to it because I'm of Nigerian heritage. I grew up in England. I'm Canadian. I was born in Canada. I've lived in Canada longer than any country in the world. Right. I travel a lot. And so where I'm from, I don't feel a particular allegiance to one country in, you know, specifically. Mm-hmm. I feel like I am a blend of all these wonderful different cultures that I've gotten to be a part of. And would you say your primary, um, if you had to choose like a primary national identifier, would it be Canadian or is that also complicated? It's also complicated because, you know, when I'm in Canada, I feel very Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) I visited Nigeria recently and a lot of people, it depends. A lot of people say, oh, you're so Canadian in terms of my actions and the things that I do. Um, but then some Canadians say, oh, you're so British in some of the, you know, some of the nuances and the little habits that I have. Yeah. Um, but I think I've lived in Canada longer than any other country. And so I probably identify the most with Canada um, in terms of the nationality. Yeah. Okay, so maybe it's a bit more clear now why I wanted Tara on this show, and it also might be a bit more clear what I meant by her not really having a culture of her own. To recap what she just told us, Tara was born in Montreal, Canada, and grew up between Nigeria and England, finally coming back to Calgary for university. And arguably, Montreal and Calgary are very different cultures of their own, even though they're both in Canada. Currently, Tara does work in Sierra Leone with her nonprofit or NGO, Freedom Tree. Now, I've heard from Tara that Sierra Leone and Nigeria are also completely different ballgames, and it's a big mistake that people commonly make to assume that a lot of Africa is similar, especially West Africa. Her Nigerian heritage is both a major identifier for her, but it's also something that has different connotations depending on what country she's in. She said that when she's in Nigeria, people comment on how Canadian she is, and even sometimes in Canada, people don't pick up on the fact that she's Nigerian. Rather, they talk about her nuances that are more British. As such, she doesn't even truly have one identity she sticks with, and she doesn't have a problem with that. I believe that in the future, there will be more and more people like Tara, including myself, that have a harder time pinpointing one specific identifier when asked that question, where are you from? Now, for those of you who've been around since episode one of this podcast, you might remember my guest, Tehila Chowele, commenting that she feels it is racist when people ask where she's from. And maybe Tara's perspective offers a bit more clarity on why someone like Tehila might feel this way. Now, Tara attributes this phenomenon to racial profiling rather than racism, But asking Tara this question, she would likely know that you're asking because her skin color is different. But the truth is she isn't from one place and she could answer and tell you that her heritage is Nigerian, but that's not really how she feels all the time. And I think what people ask when they're trying to pinpoint an identifier like culture or race is something that's gonna start to shift. Now I know this was a very sensitive topic for a lot of people that heard that first episode And I know that people don't like to be called out, especially for something like racial profiling, which is so hot button in today's society. But I do think it's worth considering the perspective of these people. And for Tara, it's not necessarily offensive that you're asking her where she's from. She just finds the question a little bit strange. And so I want to hear your perspective on this. If you're a person of color, how do you feel when someone asks where you're from? Are you very aware that they're asking because of your skin color? Or is it just nothing to you? 
And personally, I've heard Caucasian people ask each other where they're from or what their ethnic heritage is. And I think it's a very normal conversation for people that are curious. And so I think it's wrong for us to even put the people asking that question into one box. But let's start a discussion about it. What is your perspective on that question? And do you think it's racial profiling to ask it? And I'd love to hear your opinion on all my social media feeds. So you can look for this discussion on my Facebook, which is listed as Anti-Culture with Josiah Sinanen, and also on Twitter and Instagram at Josiah Podcast. So please send me your feedback and let's keep talking about this. I think it was really great that Tara commented on it. So let's jump back into Tara's story and hear more about how she feels in an ever-increasing multicultural world. So what's your what's the difference between how you are perceived racially in Canada versus a place like England, both being mosaic, multicultural? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference? Because I've actually heard from um, African Americans mm-hmm. that visiting England, there's almost this sense that part of that is missing, mm-hmm. the same kind of um, profiling that they feel in the U.S., they feel like there's aspects of that missing in the UK. Is there truth to that? I know it's different being Canadian, mm-hmm. but do you do you think there's some kind of discrepancy there? Well, the US is a whole different kettle of fish. It is, because yeah. Because when I visit the US, I am immediately aware that I'm black. Wow. And I don't always feel that in Canada. I just mm-hmm. feel like I'm Canadian. So, you right. Know, unless, you know, somebody points it out. But in the US, race is such a huge topic um, and such a sensitive topic too mm-hmm. that people talk about it all the time. Um, and especially not just race in terms of where you're from, but just the color of your skin. Yeah. Um, it's a huge identifier. Yeah. And so the U.S., so I can understand with an Af- for an African-American yeah. visiting in the U.K. feeling that they're not as, you know, profiled in that way. Um, in the U.K., um, you know, race, the color of your skin, not so much something as much of something that is um, that is an identifier, but where you're from, even in the UK. Okay. Um, also, the class and social structure are things that are um, that are a lot that are more emphasized in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. than they are in Canada, for right. sure. And so, where did you go to school? Um, who are your parents? What do you do? Where hmm. do you live? Um, what part of London are you from? Right. Um, London is a mosaic melting pot of different things. Um, now, I grew up in Liverpool. Um, right. In Liverpool, race is definitely a huge factor hmm. there. I'm much more a sensitive issue. Okay. Um, because the, it's, it's just not as multicultural as maybe the rest of the country. Um, you know, you go up to places like, say, um, Middle England, you know, maybe a small town or a village, and people are much more aware of race or culture hmm. in that way. Um, now, the difference is culturally, um, the British are known to be quite a bit more reserved, naturally, not so confrontational right. in terms of how they do things or how they say things. And so the questioning of race is much more subtle um, and it's not so in your face as it is for African-Americans right. or people in America. Right. And do you think Canadians are similar in that way? Yes, yeah, so I think Canadians are similar. Yeah. Um, however, Canada is a very welcoming country overall. Yeah. You know, for many countries that I've traveled in, you know, Canada is very multicultural, very welcoming, um, but they're a lot more reserved. And so they do find more subtle ways of asking the question mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, where people are from. But they're overall quite open and welcoming to, right. I feel, to different yeah. people from across the world. So how much time did you spend in England and how much time did you spend in Nigeria? Because those are two nations. Yes, about 10 years for each of those. Okay, crazy. And did you feel like you perceived yourself differently in both of those places? In terms of your identity, like for instance, when you were in Nigeria, did you feel more like, oh, this is where my family's from. Mm -hmm. I can just jump right into things. Mm -hmm. Whereas in England, did you feel like, oh, I have to 
mold myself to this culture? Or did you not have that at all? Well, in Nigeria, because you're not a visible minority, yeah. it's much, much easier to feel like you blend in. Right. Um, also, because you have family members who are from there, it's much more easier you know, to blend in because you feel like you belong. Nobody ever questions whether or not yeah. you're Nigerian. Right. Um, so that's not in there. Something I realized when Tara was saying this is that a lot of individuals have some area in their lives where they also feel this way. Not questioned, just accepted. Whether this is at a micro level, for example, a tight-knit family, or even at a racial level, like Tara not being questioned about her identity when she's in Nigeria. That is, until her cultural identities come out. But for someone like me, who is racially ambiguous and culturally a part of a mosaic society, a Canadian, or someone like my previous guest, Joelle Lean, who grew up as a so-called third culture kid, does this place of racial and cultural acceptance fully exist? It's hard to say. I think like Tara, I can't just go to Trinidad and feel accepted, because that's my dad's heritage, not mine, and I was raised in Canada. But conversely, in Canada, people ask me all the time where I'm from. So there's this ongoing discrepancy for people like me. Tara has some great insight into this and challenges our perception of culture with this amazing thing she says next. A lot of what we draw our identity from is actually not from what we say we are. It's actually from what others say that we are. Growing up in England as a teenager was a struggle for me because people pointed out what I was. Mm -hmm. And that was hard because I didn't, I wasn't able to give a label or a voice to who I was, but people pointed it out. Mm -hmm. And so to them, I was always the Nigerian immigrant girl. Right. Whereas by that time, growing up in England, I identified more with Britain because I hadn't visited Nigeria for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I identified more with that. Now today, I'm much more confident and much more settled and secure in who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I don't allow people to identify who I am because I know who I am. So mm -hmm. I tell people what my identity is. Right. Um, even though they may interpret it whichever way they, they feel comfortable at, but that's their problem, not mine. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, one, one of the things that was a struggle for us is that um, people would perceive and label us as um, just a black immigrant. And so they right. put you all in the category with um, Jamaican, Trinidad, Uganda, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. As long as you're black, you're all from the same place. Yeah. Which was very difficult because all of those countries are very, very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you have the label African, which is something that is can be very... Um, trying for me to as a label because Africa is a continent with 53 different countries. Mm -hmm. Even within Nigeria alone, there's about 200 different cultures right. that exist within that country. And so it's hard to put labels on that. Yeah. Um, so what I struggled with, with other people's labels and perception of who I was, um, I no longer struggle with that because I right. don't think that, that I need to contend with that anymore. Tara saying this challenged me quite a bit. I mean, obviously for me, this discussion on cultural identity and people trying to figure out what makes them them is a huge point of discussion I want us to start having. But she got me thinking, why does it even matter at the end of the day? If people choose to label you based on something like your heritage and then don't take the time to hear your full experience or aren't even curious about it, that's really their own way of thinking. Tara is perfectly happy with saying she doesn't have one answer to her cultural identity. And I guess I am too and always have been. But being genuinely curious and continuing to ask about people's stories is where things start to get interesting. 
Think about how disappointing it would be for someone to never ask Tara about her journey in all these different countries, or about how Sierra Leone became a part of it. If they just wrote her off as someone with Nigerian heritage and that's it, that's the end of the story. I do want to quickly mention something amazing about Tara's story that she discovered in the past few years about Sierra Leone. At first, Sierra Leone seemed to be a country that came about by chance for Tara while she was involved in her various volunteering initiatives. It was just the country that she was able to go to. But she continued to go throughout the years and discover the need there, and she's very glad that she did. In the way that life paints its beautiful picture, Tara never had children of her own. She still hopes to, though. But she is becoming a mother to this whole nation by being a major factor in restoring healthy births to the country. I think that's incredible, but the irony goes well beyond that. Tara also recently discovered that her great-grandmother from Nigeria made trips to Sierra Leone herself and actually played a role in helping with the country's independence and also being involved with similar initiatives as Tara. What are the chances that Tara would unknowingly follow in her great-grandmother's footsteps and return further east to the nation of Sierra Leone from Nigeria? I imagine that most people there choose to label you as Nigerian. Absolutely. Um, what or is Canadian. The, or Canadian, yeah. Or, yes, or British. They label me as what oh, they perceive, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's the dynamic between Nigeria and Sierra Leone? Because they're both West African countries. They're both West African countries, yeah. yeah. Um, from the standpoint of Sierra Leone, when I've, whenever I mention that I'm Nigerian or I have Nigerian um, parentage or origin, people are excited. Mm. It's always a po- met with a positive reaction. I've never right. had a negative reaction from it. Um, Nigerian culture, um, movies, music um, are very popular as well within Sierra Leone. So um, there's you know positive attitude towards right. that. Um, Nigeria was also instrumental in ending the civil war. A lot wow. of people don't know that, but okay. Nigeria sent a lot of their soldiers to Sierra Leone um, during the war and towards the end of the war to help keep the peace and to help end the war. Wow. Um, and so Sierra Leones are thankful for that, and they always refer to that. They always refer to, yes, Nigeria came to our rescue. Nigeria came to come cool. you know, help the civil war. So there's usually a positive perception on that um, because Nigerian culture is very dominant um, in West Africa mm-hmm. in general um, because there are just so many Nigerians. There's 180 million Nigerians as opposed to 6 million Australians. And so it's met positively. People also... Um, people also some you know treat me as Canadian because they say, well, you know, you're Canadian. So it depends on yeah. what people treat me depending on what their viewpoint is on what a Nigerian is and what a Canadian right. is or what a British person is. Right. And so people have a view in their minds of what these countries look like and what you should look like coming from yeah. there. And depending on which box I fit in is the box that they put me in. Which is interesting because it's it's for them it's less about blackness. Exactly. Which we would say is primary here. That's right. And it's more so about how you're presenting yourself. It's more about how you're presenting yourself, yeah. how I dress, my um, how I talk, my cultural preferences, my preferences in food, right? <laughs> uh, my preferences in music, all of those things are interpreted a certain way. Mm. Um, my values surrounding money, um, my mannerisms, um, how I greet people or how I talk to people, and all of those things are interpreted a certain way. Yeah. What I find is most of us as human beings, we really like to classify people in box people. Yes. And so we like labels. Yeah. Um, we want to put people in labels in boxes. Um, and our challenge as a human being is not to live within those labels. And mm-hmm. so I try not to do that. And mm-hmm. I feel very free not to live within the labels that people put me in. Mm-hmm. But I'm very much aware that they still do it anyway. Yes. Um, you're, you cannot control what people do and how 
they think and how they label you. Um, but you can control your own um, perception and on your mm-hmm. own reaction to that. And so I generally don't feel the need to explain myself um, or to present myself a certain way. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And you will get to know me as you know that. You did briefly mention to me at one point that um, it's very uncommon if, you ha- if you're from an African country to help in another country that's not your own in Africa. So what's, that, what's the perception being of Nigerian heritage and helping in Sierra Leone? Is there a negative perception to that? How do people react? Um, it's a positive perception. Okay. Yeah, it's a positive um, reaction to it in general. Um, and then again, it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, when I'm talking to a lot of Nigerians, I always get the question of, well, why do you do it in Sierra Leone? Why not Nigeria? Yeah. Um, because people feel, you know, there's this phrase, you know, charity begins at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, funny enough, I get the same question from Canadians when I talk to them about what we do in Sierra Leone. They go, well, you know, people need help here too. I understand that. Yeah. People need help in Canada. Yeah. And so there's sometimes a perception that you go back to where you're from um, to help or to, um, to support, you know, different initiatives. Um, the reason why you don't see in general, um, uh, maybe trade or interaction between West African countries on that light, um, as much is because, again, I think it roots back to some of the colonialism and the relationships that were formed with countries. Mm -hmm. The relationships that were forged between, for Nigeria, for example, were more with England than with anything else. Right. Um, the relationships that were formed with Senegal were with France. Right. And so instead of Senegal trading with Nigeria as a natural option, they traded with with France or with other French West African countries. Right. Um, so you don't see as much of that, you know, going back and forth. Hmm. Um, I think as a whole, the continent of Africa, we still have a long way to go with working with each other. Um, we haven't always done that. We've um, Africa, I think, has has tended with the countries have tended to work with the colonial masters so to speak and to trade with the colonial masters mm-hmm. as opposed to working with each other mm-hmm. one very good example it reflects even in just the transportation one very good example is the lack of available accessible um, trans- transportation means between countries within yeah. the continent um, especially when it comes to airlines or trains Interesting. And so up until maybe about a decade ago, something for some countries, you had to fly to Europe and then from Europe get another <laughs> flight to a place in you know in Africa to get from one place to another. Wow. Um, you know, now there's a few airlines that are really changing that. Ethiopian Airlines is really um, they're forging ahead and trying cool. to create a trans-Africa network mm-hmm. with flights. But that's that's a typical example of the countries not really working together because they are still breaking away from patterns yeah. that were established 40, 50 years ago during colonialism, Interesting. which prevented those countries working together simply because they were ruled by the French and the English and the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And so unless the English and the Portuguese were working together, then those countries underneath them were not working together. Yeah. And so those patterns still exist. Um, and so um, we need to work hard, I think, to break those yeah. um, and to work together, um, to work together in a healthier fashion. Now, this is obviously a whole other topic we can talk about the different African countries and how they've developed. And I actually have a little bit of an extra clip that's going to be coming out later this week where Tara explains the difference between Nigerian culture, Sierra Leonean culture, and also why we can't say that individual countries in Africa even have their own culture to start with because of the many tribal relations that are within those countries. So if you're interested in hearing more about that discussion and Tara's output on that, I definitely learned a lot. Definitely subscribe to the podcast and you'll see that extra clip come up right after this episode. 
and we'll put in a couple other extras for this one as well because there's so much content to go over because Tara has had her foot in so many different cultures. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And for now, let's jump into the last portion of my interview with Omatara Johnson. But do you have a favorite story from Sierra Leone? Um, oh, I have so many stories. <laughs> <laughs> stories about... Maybe something that ties into... Maybe something that ties into something that you'd want people to know um, about, about Sierra Leone, about your passion. Gosh, I have so many stories. I think... Um... I think one of my favorite stories is uh, um, just the honor of naming children after you, right. what they do in Sierra Leone. Um, and so in one of the villages that we worked in, there was uh, a, young, um, a young woman who had had six stillbirths. Yeah. And um, when we started intervening in the village, as a result, she was able to give birth uh, to her seventh child, who was a healthy baby girl. And right. she named her Tara. That's awesome. And that was um, really fun and really exciting. And so when I go there, um, people tease me and they say, Tara, here's your father, referring to her father. And they say, oh, you've come back home to visit us. <laughs> and, um, you know, and how is, you know, how is, how are you doing? Because you're now family to us. Yeah. Um, and on my last trip there, there was another girl in another village that was named after me. Oh, cool. Um, so from the village in the north. And so I got the same response and they said, here's your mom. You need to come and come to your village all the time and be part of us wow. and be part of what we do. And so it's kind of, a, it's a funny nuance, but it's such an honor yeah. to have somebody, you know, named after you. And, of course. And they do it for that because they're saying, I like what you have and I want my child to you know to sort of be like you and um and also as a means of gratitude and so yeah I think that's yeah I think that's kind of one of my yeah favorite stories but I have so many funny stories of just you know traveling in different places and meeting different people and some of the you know some of the quirks yeah um, I love the gifts that I get in Sierra Leone it's you know the one place <laughs> I go that people give me a goat as a gift right <laughs> or a chicken as a gift and I've learned to cherish those because it's very generous of them look forward to eating the goat meat yeah <laughs> at some point that's awesome and it's, I love those stories of telling people that yeah we had to take the goat back in the truck all the way back to the guest house and have somebody slaughter it a few days later <laughs> I hope I'm not upsetting any <laughs> by, by saying that um, but I love those stories of hospitality and generosity that I experience when mm -hmm. I'm in when I'm in Sierra Leone um, and there's just things that are very funny that you see yeah. every day in you know when you're there that you just it only makes sense when you're there yeah, outside totally. of there it just makes no sense whatsoever <laughs> it's always lots of fun infant and maternal mortality it's a grim subject and it's a complex issue to solve but Tara's demeanor and passion creates a beautiful juxtaposition to the darkness of what's happening in Sierra Leone. It's also kind of incredible that she was seemingly chosen to do this kind of work. Even if it seemed coincidental at first, it really wasn't. This is an issue that superseded culture and identity, and Tara's perspective on embracing the reality of who she was and focusing on the why really made all the difference. It amazes me how a single individual can have such an impact with such a huge issue. Even in my three months in Sierra Leone, it was difficult to pinpoint why such a small country was the victim of this wretched statistic, being the worst place in the world to give birth. And truthfully, I could create a whole other podcast detailing some of the facts. Strangely, Sierra Leone is one of the only West African countries to still perform ritualistic FGM or female genital mutilation. 
It is deeply rooted in society and even in urban centers in the country like Freetown, 90% of the women have been circumcised. Obviously, this creates birthing complications, but it goes beyond even this. Lack of hospital access, the fact that there are almost no fully licensed doctors in the whole country, and even the genuine effect of fear all play a role in why women and children are dying here. So how does someone like Tara approach such a complex issue with so many causes behind it? And how can we begin to help regardless of our cultural background? I think this concept can be applied to almost any kind of humanitarian work. What's really going on and where are we coming at it from? Is it our duty as someone that comes from maybe a more privileged country to enter into these countries that need help and run alongside them? Or do we teach them to be empowered? It's the whole development issue that's a big discussion throughout all sorts of circles in NGOs and nonprofits and the type of work that they do. But I think Tara has a great approach with Freedom Tree that challenges even the culture of NGOs themselves. I mean, it's such an abstract problem, infant and maternal mortality. How do you combat that yes. um, as a nonprofit? What's the uh -huh. strategy there? Mm -hmm. Well, currently we have what we call the five pillars that we work through um, to combat that. Each of those five pillars represents the five reasons that a woman will die giving birth. Mm. The first one is health care, so the lack of available health care. Um, the second one is infrastructure, so the bad roads or the lack of infrastructure in the country. Um, the third one is education. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth one is the social structures within the country. So it's just social patterns and habits that happen. And the, th the last one is the community ownership. So how well does a community work together? Right. So in each of those areas, we work to um, increase and to improve those levels on a community level. Right. So we don't work with one woman at a time. Mm -hmm. We work with one community at a time. Mm -hmm. And so in one community, we need to see um, how best can we improve the education? Can we do scholarship programs for the kids in this community? Um, do we need to build a new school? Do we need to repair the school? what needs to happen um, right do we need to build a clinic you know in the healthcare for infrastructure do we need to provide a boat so that people can access the nearest clinic and they can cross the river mm -hmm. in safety um, on the social structures do we need to do some community prevention and health education along that to talk about some of the practical ways in which people can join in mm -hmm. um, with that um, and with community ownership um, how do we work with the chiefs and the leaders and the rulers and the men so that it's not just a woman's issue it's mm -hmm. not just the children's issue it's the whole community working together yeah so we work in each of those areas, um, and so what we do is quite diverse. We could be, we do scholarship programs for children, we build schools, um, we improve um, the quality of schools, we train teachers, um, we improve the, the, the training of teachers and, and what they have, um, we build clinics, we improve access, um, we also have provided um, boats, or even just a means of transportation for people to be able to get from one clinic to, to mm -hmm. you know, from the village to the clinic to right. solve that. Um, and then we've worked very closely with community leaders. We also have a curriculum of which you were part of, Josiah, yeah. which really helps us in that one area of um, social structures. And the curriculum is a pre and postnatal 
um, curriculum for the community, the whole community, to go through. It's a 10-week program, mm-hmm. and we implement that in communities, which helps for people to talk about the problem, to take ownership of a problem, to come up with collective situations, yeah. um, collective um, solutions, rather, right. for this issue on how do we solve maternal and infant mortality mm-hmm. together. And we're seeing change. Yeah. It's happening. So there are communities where we had two to three women dying every month, wow. and today there are none. That is awesome. Um, in Simbo and Tabima, which you've been to, yeah. we would have about four babies die every month. Now we have 25 children being born every single month wow. in the clinic that we built, and none of them die. That is amazing. So um, <laughs> we are seeing change happen. We're seeing um, difference. We've seen children graduate from the schools that we've built, and they've gone scholarships to prestigious universities. So I'm very honored um, to be part of this to be part of this movement I call freedom to your people movement. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a top-down approach, but the whole goal is to have as many people as possible from diverse backgrounds get involved with what we're doing to end this. Thank you all of my listeners who made it this far in episode one of season two. As mentioned, we'll have a bunch of extras from my interview with Tara coming out this week on the feed, so stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for making my launch episode successful this season thus far. Special thanks for this season goes out to Arcade Studios, who helped with all the new graphic content, media, and strategy. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more about what's really happening in Sierra Leone and how Freedom Tree is combating infant and maternal mortality, you can head to their website at www.freedomtree.ca. Anyone can get involved with this initiative, and one of the extra clips I'll be posting will be explaining just how Freedom Tree eradicates an abstract issue like infant and maternal mortality. Anti-culture is not going anywhere. We have a big season in store for you all, so stay tuned next week with another chat from someone who challenges the boxes they've been put in. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Josiah Podcast, and find me on Facebook at Anti-Culture with Josiah Synonym. You can also visit our splash page at www.josiahsenonin.com slash podcast for all the upcoming updates you need for the season. Until then, thank you for tuning into Anti-Culture. I'm your host, Josiah Sinanin, and we'll talk to you next week.